So if you looked at your bulletin, you'd be sitting here wondering, that's not Joel. And you'd be right. I am not Joel. Uh, But unfortunately, as Jacob said, uh, Joel isn't feeling well. And uh, he texted the elders yesterday and and said so. And um, it was... It was kind of like when you're, when you're watching a baseball game and you're looking at the bullpen and you see that the relief pitchers, some of them, they don't expect to get called up. They got their shirt unbuttoned, they're <laughs> spitting seeds. It was kind of like that yesterday. Uh, but he asked if one of us had something in, in our back pocket and, and by God's grace, uh, I am here today uh, and, and able to, to preach uh, from Ephesians. Um, so <clears throat> I appreciate everybody's willingness to be flexible this morning. Uh, we are going to pause on uh, Hebrews while Joel gets better, I hope, and uh, he'll soon be back in the saddle. Um, but uh, in Ephesians, um, since we haven't been here yet uh, and, and we haven't gone through it, it it's, it's in the New Testament. It's one of the letters from Paul. It's in the go eat popcorn section. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's the eat one. So go in there in Ephesians. Um, I love the book of Ephesians. It is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is actually my favorite entire uh, uh, part of Scripture, and verse 4 in particular. Um, So today we're going to be preaching, or I'm going to be preaching from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And in Ephesians, what you have is, is kind of a split. You have two sections within Ephesians. You have the first three chapters where Paul gives an amazing picture. He talks about who God is, who Christ is, the gospel, and how it reorients everything in our life and changes our identity and gives us hope. And then verse, in chapters 4 through 6, he then takes it and outlines the life of a Christian now that we have been radically transformed and reoriented by the gospel. So today's sermon, like I said, will be verses 1 through 7. And our title of the sermon today is But God. And the main point that I'd like to, come, that I'd like to bring out is in two things. Through the gospel, we experience the radical reorientation of our lives and our hope. So let's read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, be rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the end, but God will preach. And what I mean by that is that at the end of our days and when the new life comes, all we will have is the reality of our but God. Yet even now, even today, all we have truly is but God. 
So as I said, there is two things that I would like to point out. First is the radical reorientation of our lives. And there's two things under that that I'd like to see in this. In, the, in Scripture, we see that our life is radically reoriented from being dead to made alive together with Christ. In verses 1 through 3, it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul immediately jumps to our condition before the Lord, our identity. After providing this beautiful introduction in chapter 1 where Paul blesses the Lord and speaks of the enormous blessing we have in Christ, he then moves to taking his audience to the truth of their condition and identity prior to Christ, which is also the identity of those who have not been redeemed by Jesus. Paul opens up with our threefold depravity, talking about the world, the devil, and our flesh. And depravity just means simply our corruption or wickedness. This was or is all of our spiritual condition. Not one of you were born any different. We were all described like this, or we currently remain like this as it's described. And in scripture, what we see, we see the use of threes often to symbolize completeness. What we have here in verses one through three is the demonstration of the completeness of our depravity, the description of our sinful nature or the bondage of man. Firstly, the world. And I'm not talking about, any, and he's not talking about the natural world, but the system of humanity, our culture, this day and age. Look what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And this is the world that hates Christ, as Jesus himself said in John 15, 18, where he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And Paul tells us here, that we follow the course of this world. We are worldly. Outside of Christ, we are no different than the rest of the world. And as Jesus said, the world hates him, and so did we. Secondly, and continuing on, he says, and I'm going to start back again at one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul tells us that outside of Christ, not only do we follow the world, but we follow the prince of the power of the air. Who is this, this, this one that he talks about? Who in the world is the prince of the power of the air? We see that this person has a position of authority because he is called a prince. And his power or his dominion is the air or really the entire earth, essentially. In the temptation of Christ in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days, we hear the devil tell Jesus the following in Matthew 4, 8 through 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And the same temptation, but in Luke chapter four, verse six, the devil says to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. So this prince of the power of the air is the devil himself who we hear in these passages was given authority over the, all the earth. And Paul tells us, that we follow the world and the prince of the power of the air, who is the devil or Satan or that snake whom we listened to at the beginning of the garden, the one who stalks around like a lion looking for whomever he can devour. This is the one that we follow in our sinful state. And thirdly, we see Paul make reference to our trespasses and sins. So he says in verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
These are the individual sins we commit, but it's also our sinful nature. When he talks about the passions of our flesh, it's not the physical body necessarily that he's speaking to. He's referring more to our sinfulness and rebellion against God. Paul says in Galatians 5.20 that the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This list of sinful works of the flesh is the life that we live as our, in our natural selves. Then when Paul speaks to the desires of the body and the mind, he's basically getting at that it is, in our, it is our entire self that is depraved. From our actions to our thoughts and intentions, inside and out, we are wicked. So Paul outlines that we are completely depraved or wicked by speaking to our threefold depravity, the world, Satan, and our own hearts. But what does that mean, that we are completely depraved? Essentially, the Lord is telling us that we aren't just a little bad. I'm not just a little bit better than that person over there. No, the bad news is that we are completely depraved. We are completely sinful. Our condition that our condition that we are in outside of Christ is that we are completely and wholly against the Lord. In verses 1 through 3, Paul not only speaks to the condition we are in, but also speaks to the identity of those who are outside of Christ. Look what it says at the end of verse 3. It says, And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our identity outside of Christ is that we are by nature children of wrath. Paul applies this to everyone, saying that we are all in the same boat because he's talking to believers in this letter, but he also says that we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he doesn't leave a single human out of this equation. Everyone was or is a child of wrath. And that wrath that we face is the wrath from God himself, which is just punishment for our sin. So what does that sinfulness then lead to? In Romans 5.18, Paul speaks to how our sin has led to condemnation for all of us. We are condemned and must pay the penalty then because of that condemnation, which according to Romans 6.23 is death. So we all go about with an air of death about us. This death began when we were cursed in the garden. Genesis 3.19 says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because we sinned against God, we were cursed by him, and death was given as a punishment for that sin. But why are our sins deserving of death? Because simply they are against God. God is our creator. As our creator, and as a creator, he has rights over his creation. With his creation, he can do whatever he pleases. He can set the rules, he can set the punishments. And because we have sinned against him and we have broken his rules, God has the rights over us as creatures to punish us. But more importantly, God is holy. And any sin, whether small or great in our eyes, it does not matter. Any sin is a mighty offense against this holy God. This is the God who gave us the Ten Commandments, the, the Ten Commandments that were set apart as a law that we would live by, and, and that in that we have to keep to, remain, to be righteous. And as, as we were talking about in Foundations, 
that even if you were to keep the whole law, James says in chapter 1, if we were to keep the whole law and stumble at just one point, we're guilty of breaking all of it. There is not one single person here who has not broken God's law. We have all broken God's law, and we all then deserve just punishment because he is holy, set apart, and we have offended this God. Brothers and sisters, in our natural state, there is no hope. There is no light. Our condition is being dead, and our identity is as a child of wrath for those who have not been saved and as the past for those who have been saved. Once without excuse before a holy God, deserving of his wrath and condemnation. But then, we come to the great hinge, that great gateway between our past and our new life and hope. But God. Verses 1 through 3 paint a dark and bleak picture. Left there, we have no hope. Then the greatest transition in all of the Bible, at least in my humble opinion, comes with two little words, but God. And it is because of this but God that he makes us who we once were dead, now alive in Christ. We were already dead. He had no reason to save us. He had no reason to do anything to help us, to save us. But the Bible says that we, and because the Bible says we were enemies of God in Romans chapter 5. But just like when Peter denied Christ three times, Jesus then gave him three times to confess his love and to forgive him. Paul outlines, and I think this is, from my studies, one of the coolest things in this. We have our threefold fold depravity showing how completely depraved we are, how completely sinful we are. God counters that with a threefold grace, with a threefold counter to our complete depravity, which God's mercy, it, it, well, sorry, God, which will be and is a complete redemption for the believer. From complete depravity to complete redemption in Christ through God's mercy, through his great love, and his grace. In verses 4 and 5 it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So let's look at that threefold counter. Paul leads off with mercy. Why? Because in verses 1 through 3, they spell out just how bad of an offense we were in our natural state to this holy God. As one commentator pointed out, a believer's past recalled in verses 1 through 3 is not the emphasis per se, but it is used to magnify and draw attention to the greatness of God's mercy shown to us. As we have heard, mercy is not giving us what we deserve, which is an eternal death in hell because of the complete depravity of our lives, as we just talked about. And the Bible tells us that his justice requires punishment for our sins. That punishment, though, is not handed to those who are in Christ. No, he is merciful to us through Jesus' atoning death for our sins, which paid the penalty for them, which is what I think Paul means when he says that God is rich in mercy. In this threefold counter by God, to our complete depravity, we go from mercy to God's great love. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 
Paul says that we are made alive in Christ because of God's great love for us. My goodness, beloved. Stop and think about this. Slow down and hear that again. Because of the great love with which he loved us. We don't deserve this. I know I feel so undeserving of his love, but doesn't that just also make you feel okay? No matter what life is throwing at you right now, you are loved by the creator of the universe. You are loved by God. So much so that he sees your very in the gutter self, takes the bright light of but God, and gives you life through love. He gives you life in Christ through his great love, shown through Christ, a love that created you and a love that he uses to pursue you like in the story of Hosea and Gomer. You may remember in the book of Hosea, God told Hosea to marry Gomer, who was a woman that was a prostitute. Throughout the book, we keep seeing Gomer continuing to go back to her other lovers and prostitute herself out. Yet Hosea is to keep pursuing Gomer and bring her back home. Gomer is God's people. We are the ones completely depraved and do not love God as we should. God is Hosea, the one who pursues his people with a fierce love to keep bringing us back home to him. This is the love that God employs to save us, to give us a life through Christ, that great love with which he redeems us. And not only that, not only does God give us mercy and love, but he gives us grace to combat that complete depravity to give us life. Getting Grace is getting something that we don't deserve. So as we see in verse 5, it says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And then in verse 8, Paul tells us that this grace is a gift of God. It's not something that we earn, for if it was, it wouldn't be a gift and it wouldn't be grace. But grace is freely given to us by the Lord. Our lives are grace upon grace. Daily we are experiencing the grace of God because not one of us deserves to be here today, to have breath in our lungs, to have any of the good gifts of sunshine, mountain, rain, family, jobs, or anything else, let alone the goodness of God and his presence in our life. This threefold complete counter to our depravity is all through the but God, which is Jesus himself. This but God is simply the gospel. The work that the Lord did to save us. It was Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And for those who put their faith in Christ, repenting of their sins, then they will be washed by the blood of Christ to cleanse them from all iniquity and given life eternal as a gift. But God is the Lord's work to take us from death to life. In verse 5 it says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Saved, my beloved. We are saved from our complete depravity and identity as those who were children of wrath destined from hell. And being made alive is being made alive together with Christ, as Paul says in verse 5. And how is Christ alive? He was resurrected from the dead. We too are resurrected from our death. For he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, this same power that raised Christ is given to us as well to raise us from our death, 
The dead cannot make themselves alive, and nor could we when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We needed that but God. This life we have with Christ reflects our position before the Lord in Christ. For verse 6 tells us that we were raised up in the heavenly places in Christ. Today, yes, today, we are raised up in Christ, positionally with him, no longer dead, but adopted as a son with Jesus. So as we think through this change, this radical reorientation from death to life, we need to ask ourselves, does my life look like the world? Am I following the world or my fleshly desires or even the devil with an air of death about me? Or do I really live alive to God in Christ? Remember that life in Christ was bought by his precious blood and God countered your threefold depravity with his threefold complete redemption of you, his mercy, his great love, and his grace. Secondly, we see that our life is not only radically reoriented from death to being made alive with Christ, but our life also is radically reoriented from restlessness to resting in Christ. Outside of Christ, we are restless in our action. Take a look at the verbs used to describe in verses 1 through 3 those outside of Christ. They walked, they were following, they lived, they were carrying out. These words work out out of a restlessness. Further, Paul's use of carrying out connotes a slavishness to our sin, for the truth is we are indeed slaves to sin. We are following the wrong things. In our restlessness, we are the actor, acting out our depravity. And like the preacher described in Ecclesiastes, this is a striving after the wind. We are a restless people, looking to make it on our own, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, the American way. Yes, and in this even seeps into our religiousness too. If I say enough prayers, give enough money to the poor, if I attend church enough, if I was to, to be kind to, to this person or that person enough, if I was to buy enough good karma, then I will go to heaven. This is how I viewed heaven before Christ, a sort of balance system. And Paul is saying here that our sinful natures are restless, always looking for what's next to make myself better. In our restless state, though, we have a but God. It is God who gives us a resting in him. Jesus said it is finished with his dying breath. And so we know that the work for our salvation is complete, and this is seen in the verbs used throughout the rest of the passage in verses 4 through 7. These are a language of love and grace. First off, in verse 4, we see that God loved us. We rest in his love because God is the one who loves us. Verse 5 tells us that he made us alive. We can't make ourselves alive. We were dead. But we can rest in his making us alive. Thirdly, in verse 5, we see that by grace we are saved. The one needing rescuing can do nothing to help himself. He can only rest in the one who rescues. In verse 6, we see that we are, raised, we are raised up and seated with him. God shows his great love, and then we rest in him as we are raised and seated with Christ. And finally, he will show us his immeasurable riches in grace and kindness in verse 7. We sit back as God, who is the greatest showman, the Father who is so excited to put on display one, to put on a display one that the universe has never seen before. In our restlessness, in our sin, we are the actor. 
But God radically reorients our lives to no longer be the actor, but he acts on our behalf to bring us to rest in him. Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is a Sabbath rest for God's people. And Jesus also says at the end of John 16, that in this world we will face many tribulations, but take heart because he has overcome the world. So rest. And out of this resting in Christ, we live out the Christian life as Paul explains in Ephesians 4 through 6. Because we can rest in him, trusting him to provide and guide. So think on your life and your attitude of rest. Am I resting in Christ? Or am I striving after the wind? Paul says that we are his workmanship to perform the good works he has ordained for us to do. Are we resting in those out of rest in him? Does worry, anxiety, or fear grip us? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33 that we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and that all the things that we need will then be added to us. So we are to rest. So we see that our lives in this passage are radically reoriented from death to life to restlessness to resting in him. But secondly, we see that Paul shows us that we have a radical reorientation of our hope. Our hope is radically reoriented in two ways, from having no hope to having abundant hope in Christ. As verses 1 through 3, we are the ones without hope. Think back to your life prior to Christ. Or if you're sitting here today and you know that you're not saved, is there any hope in your complete depravity? Think back on verses 1 through 3 in light of this. We walked in our trespasses and sins. Was there any hope there? We followed the course of this world. Was there any hope there? We followed the prince of the power of the air. Is there any hope in Satan? What does Revelation teach about his future? Paul says it again in verse 12 of chapter 2 that we are without hope. But God. But God gives us a hope. And that hope is in him. We can even see seeds of hope in those verses, in verses 1 through 3. Look at how Paul describes our past as believers. He uses the past tense. Believer, your spiritual condition... Your identity is no longer a child of wrath. No, you are saved from this. We are saved from death, saved from our flesh, the world, and the devil. We can look with hope, even at our past, because we hear in Ephesians 1, 4-5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Before the foundation of the world, beloved, God chose his children to bring them life in Christ, and this sets us securely in hope. But that hope lands primarily on God himself. Above all, our greatest hope is in God alone. He is the one who makes us alive. Revealed here in these verses is the omnipotence of God, for who else has the power to raise the dead? This completely powerful, dead-raising God is also merciful, loving, gracious, and kind, and who gives us rest and hope in Him. And our hope in Him will not be futile. Philippians 1.6 says that He who began a good work 
and that work is the work of saving us and conforming us to the image of his son, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So though we feel that we are far from that today, though we feel like how in the world is there a way that I'm going to be conformed to the image of the Son? How in the world in my sinfulness that I am still sinning and choosing things away from God? How in the world will he bring me to completion at the day of Jesus Christ? Though we feel far from that day, trust in the hope that, God, that it is God who will do this for you. As you sit here today, think about where your hope is. Is God your hope? Despite all that is going on in your life, do you run to him as your refuge? Do you know that he will bring all things in your life to conform you to the image of his son? Do you know that he is always good? Is he your hope? Or is your hope in something else? Do you hope your current circumstances will be comfortable? That the stock market or your bank account will keep you afloat financially? That the political landscape will not swing too far away from your preferences? Or even hoping that you can figure a way to make your life better? So God, in this, gives us a radical reorientation from having no hope to having abundant hope in God and from having no future to a joyful future with Christ. I remember before knowing Christ, I was very anxious about what I would become, how my life would turn out, because I wanted a good future that I thought was based on a good job, lots of money, fame, or notoriety. Yet what I didn't know then, but I know now, was that no matter what I did, I had no future outside of Christ. Look back at the restlessness describing our sinful state. We constantly search for something. Something that will take away our pain. Something that will take away our guilt. The preacher in Ecclesiastes looked for the things of this world to make him happy and satisfied. He went from looking at the world around him to gaining wisdom and knowledge, to work and pleasures and more. But what did he declare in the end? He discovered that all those things were just vanity of vanities. And yet, that the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Outside of Christ, we have no future. It is that wonderful but God that radically reorients our hope and gives us a future in Christ. Verse 6 is a transition. And it says in here, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is that already not yet reality. Already we are seated with Christ in the sense that our position is now with him. We are secure. We are his, and he will never let us go as he promised in John 17. But also see that being seated with Christ has a future-looking reality as well. In Revelation 3.21 it says, The one who conquers, I will get, grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That, my beloved, is an amazing promise. That seated with Christ is going to be just like in Ephesians 1.20 that says that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. We being seated with Christ in the heavenly places means that we will be with him forever. And not only will we be with him forever, but God will continue to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us for all eternity, all in Christ. There's an air of excitement in this verse as if the Father is anxiously awaiting this time to come 
so that he can pour out his immeasurable grace, meaning it will have no end, and kindness, not wrath like we deserve, but kindness in Christ. This sitting with Christ in the coming age is also seen later in the book of Revelation. And because I love this scene so much, I'm going to read from Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Beloved, we who are in Christ, because of the but God in your life, we will have a seat at God's table during the great banquet of the wedding supper of the Lamb. You, me, and all the saints throughout history will be seated at the table, raising a glass to our conquering King, rejoicing in the immeasurable grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a day that will be. Beloved, do we look too often at the good old days and think that life was better then? I know I do. But we should live in hopeful anticipation of what God will do for us in our days left here on earth and what he will show us in the age to come like an excited father. Beloved, today are trials and suffering overwhelming you. There are times and circumstances in our life that are hard. And as Andrew Peterson saying, this life is not long, but it's hard. And James tells us that our lives are but a vapor. And as a vapor, <clears throat> then our trials and sufferings are incomparable to the immeasurable riches of Christ. But here Paul tells us that because of the but God in the believer's life, because of the radical reorientation of the gospel, he will redeem, he will renew, he will restore that which was broken, primarily the dead and the dead lives that we lived. It is this but God that can bring us much hope. It brings us eternal life. And I know that for me, what I want on my epitaph, on my gravestone, are these two simple words, but God. Why? Because I want people to look at it. When they're walking by and they see this, they will see. Because I have a but God in my life, and because of all of you who have a but God in your life, death does not win. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful this morning. Because every single one of us 
when we were born, we were those ones that were identified as, as being without hope, without life. For those that you ordained from the foundations of the world, you gave us something different. We could not do this in ourselves, but God. But God, you intervened. You gave us new life and a hope in Christ. May you help us to walk in that this week. May you help us to remember that there is a but God that we can go back to and a but God that we live in and a but God that we can hope in and know that our salvation is secure in Christ, that you will conform us to the image of your Son. You are not done with us. And when death comes, we will have life and life eternal. And we will be raised in that day. We will be raised shouting with the Lord, victory. And we will sit at the table raising a glass to our conquering king and rejoicing in the lamb who made a way, who gave us the but God in our life that we can live and have eternal life with you and eternal life to, to just sit back and watch and rest in our Lord to show us the immeasurable riches of his kindness in Christ. May that lead us this week for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.